try to go into activities that are value creating, where you know that the work you're doing financially directly drives tangible real world improvements for the world and society at a profit, driving growth, driving competitive returns, which are not incompatible based on the research and data. Get into finance, get your foot in the door wherever you can, as long as it's not a firm that's just blatantly unethical and profiteering. Get those basic skills and those core skills so you can navigate your way to a firm or to starting your own firm one day where you can really help deploy and allocate capital to its highest and most productive use for humanity. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the I Impact podcast, the podcast that aims to redefine and expand the boundaries of a social impact career. I'm Abby, and alongside my co-host, Elise, we are so excited that you are joining us in our journey of finding purpose in our professions. Today, we are so excited to start off this podcast with a very special guest, Ross Overline. Yes, we cannot wait for this podcast session. Thank you so much for being here, Ross. To start off, we'll give our audience listeners a little bit of background on you. So Ross is the co-founder and CEO of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. Prior to Scholars of Finance, Ross held roles spanning equity research at Piper Sandler, global go-to-market at Twitter, and serving on the leadership team that launched the checking and savings business at SoFi. So today's podcast is going to follow two main themes. The first topic is going to talk more about Ross's journey to finance and then his creation of Scholars of Finance. And then the second topic will talk more about social impact in the finance industry. Ross, thank you for being here. I first heard about Scholars of Finance during a social impact and entrepreneurship talk at Princeton. And it was really inspiring to hear your journey to working in finance and then creating Scholars of Finance. And we would love for you to share that story again for our listeners. Evie Elise, thank you so much for having me. This has already been fun and preparing for the episode. Yay. Super grateful for your invitation and for having me today. Thank you for your patience as we got this scheduled. It's been a very busy season. Yeah. Happy to share the story and I'll, I'll try to be brief here. My background originally from a small town in Minnesota. Parents split up when I was young and my mom took us to the Northeast to Connecticut and New York. Started my undergraduate degree at Fordham University in the Bronx in New York City and I finished my degree at the University of Minnesota. I, through college, started a consulting firm. My freshman and sophomore year of college grew that, ended up winding that back to focus, more, focus on academics more, and I ended up being invited by a mentor of mine to intern for him at Piper Sandler, a global middle market investment bank in equity research and their technical analysis team. That's really where Scholars of Finance began. I'll come back to that. The rest of my career, another mentor of mine around that time had introduced me to Adam Bain, who was formerly the chief operating officer of Twitter. And I had a coffee with Adam 20 minutes in. He asked me, what am I doing for work? And thrusts me into interviews at Twitter. I ended up getting an offer, one in a million opportunity to go directly into global go-to-market as a, what's called a PMM at Twitter from undergrad. To contextualize that, they hired two of us, Sam, a friend of mine was just finishing up his MBA at Stanford at the GSB after graduating Yale, four years of experience. Needless to say, I was severely underqualified for that role at Twitter. My role there was more or less to quarterback global product launches. In my one year at Twitter, I led 10 product launches that reach a billion people in a hundred countries and 40 languages. And being six to 12 months out of college, that was a incredibly challenging role, a very steep learning curve. And I oftentimes joke, that I got the equivalent of one MBA and 10 years of experience and 
hopefully not the gray hair to accompany it. And after spending some time at Twitter, where I learned so much, I went to a couple of fintech companies, Five Stars, which is in the SMB payment space. They recently just got sold, um, were acquired by SumUp, where I was in roles uh, across growth, marketing, strategy, product management, among others. And then I worked at SoFi, as you mentioned, as the on the leadership team launching our cash management business, our checking savings deposits business, which was a lot of fun. My pursuit of impact, which I think the students listening to your podcast may appreciate, because of my parents' divorce, it was a really messy divorce. It was really, really challenging. The kind of divorce that psychologists say should plunge a seven-year-old into a life of drugs or crime. I feel a little bit vulnerable sharing this part of my story still to this day. A lot of my mentors encouraged me to share this part of my story. But for luck or good fortune, the grace of God, whatever your beliefs, and but for a number of teachers and mentors who saw something in me and invested in me, I just don't know where I'd be today. And so I live my life every day with this profound sense of gratitude, not taking anything for granted. And I feel a real sense of obligation, not even obligation, but like a duty and a joyful, willing responsibility to pay it forward right? All the gifts and blessings that I've received want to pay forward. I think the experience my family had growing up, this really, really difficult sort of explosive divorce gave me open eyes and an open heart to see and feel Mm -hmm. all of the pain and suffering and adversity that Mm -hmm. so many people in our society face. And I I had first world problems at at worst. There There are a billion plus people facing some form of hunger, poverty, lack of basic resources like education and healthcare. And even in more developed countries like the United States, a lot of Western nations, BRIC countries, suicide, depression, anxiety, mental illness is on the rise. And so through high school and college, I was really on the search to find the one thing that I could do with my career that had the highest probability of the deepest positive impact on the most people possible over the long term. And scholars of finance became the answer to that search for me. I was getting a journalism degree of all things. I thought holding the government accountable as a journalist was my way to change the world until I started putting those skills to to work, learning how the world works and recognizing that in business and finance, I could have a lot more impact. And so while in my degree, I was studying government, I was studying media, I was really in the impact space. So I studied nonprofits, I studied social enterprise. It became apparent to me that business was the the way to make the largest impact possible, which is why I started my consulting firm, to actually work with these businesses, get business experience to supplement this journalism degree that I was studying for. And when this mentor invited me to intern for him at Piper Sandler, my job there was to topically analyze more than 4,000 10Ks or annual filings of public companies. Wow. And with a lot of caffeine and a lot of- no all-nighters. I have Ooh, been wow. very strict about seven good. hours of sleep a night. Same. I, I still, yeah, but one of the rare ones on campus. Good, good. Yes. I'm like, you text me after nine o'clock, expect to yes. hear from me at 5.30 tomorrow. But uh, I digress. A lot of caffeine, a lot of music, tore through these 4,410 Ks. It was supposed to be a 12-month project. I got it done in five months with no prior finance background. I automated most of the project. And in my remaining two months at Piper, I got chopped around at sales and trading, a bunch of different groups in the firm, ended up meeting Andrew Duff, the CEO, who's been one of my closest mentors for the last eight years since. What struck me as I was like 
I had a great experience at Piper. So just shout out to anybody at Piper who might be listening. Thank you for the experience and for being the, the birth, the, the birthing ground, like the birthplace of scholars of finance. What struck me is the thesis for scholars of finance when I was at Piper. Here it is simply. When you look at the problems that face society, the problems that face society are multi-trillion dollar problems. They are mm -hmm. enormous. Hunger, poverty, climate change, inequity and inequality, and access to education and healthcare, the mental health crisis, all these things, war. These are multi-trillion dollar global systemic problems that affect millions to billions of people. One of the top three consulting firms just a few years ago published a report suggesting that us as a human race achieving carbon net neutrality is a 30-year, $150 trillion investment and process. And so, okay, these problems, the sheer magnitude is overwhelming, almost arresting. We have to then look at the superstructures that we have constructed over time as a species to address these problems and maximize our collective thriving and flourishing. To simplify, let's say nonprofits, governments, business finance. Nonprofits cannot solve the world's problems at speed and scale. And that's not me being disparaging towards nonprofits. Scott Harrison, the CEO of Charity Water, is one of our advisors, a dear friend and mentor of mine. He's a celebrity in the nonprofit space. He's raised about a billion dollars now in the last 15 years and says, Ross, we've accomplished amazing things. I get heralded a celebrity. We've given 20 million people clean drinking water, but there are still 600 50 plus million people without clean drinking water. It's going to take us more than a century to, to do the work. Nonprofits bring urgent capital to urgent needs, but there's not enough there, right? They, but depending on whose data you look at, nonprofits in the, in, in the US, which is one of the most philanthropic countries in the world, can't wrestle more than two to 5% of GDP away from the private sector and, the, and government where the rest of the resources are. So two, you look at government, the next superstructure. Money is power. Money has an enormous influence over our politics. If you've heard of FEC versus McCutcheon or FEC versus Citizens United, these landmark Supreme Court cases, you know that any individual or corporation can donate an unlimited amount of money to any political campaign. And that money's not distributed equally, right? And most of our voting population aren't experts on all the issues, on all the candidates, their backgrounds, their platforms. There's just so much complexity. Most of us don't, and this isn't being disparaging towards all of us voters, most of us just don't have the time to be the experts on the issues. And so then how are elections won? It's who can run the best PR and marketing campaign to galvanize the most people to vote for you based on very little data. And so we then have to ask ourselves, if our government sold the hold into capital, where's the capital? 80% of capital in the United States is in the private sector, in business and in finance. When you look at businesses, a CEO is simply an employee who reports to a board who serves shareholders and investors, the owners of that company CEO works for. And so where is the power? It's in finance, right? The whole system, keep going back to find like the highest leverage thing. Where does it all begin? Where is the source of all this? It's in finance. Right. With 150 plus trillion dollars in assets in the formal financial system, with several hundred trillion entering it in the next several decades, there is so much power and influence and incentive consolidated in the financial system. Money as an anthropological construct is storable, fungible, exchangeable power. 
It's a really uncomfortable thing to talk about for people, but it is. And so you have this mass consolidation of power within the financial system. And so what hit me, and as a junior in college, was, oh my gosh, we have to change the financial system to change the world, right? A, to solve the world's problems. B, just a few years back was the Great Recession in 2007, 8, and 9. It was like five, six years in the rearview mirror at this time. And I, as I was studying hundreds of financial companies, I learned a lot about the recession, great financial crisis of 08. And it became clear that arguably it took less than 1% of finance professionals to plunge the entire economy into chaos and lead to 10 million people losing their jobs, all while exacerbating an already poor reputation that Wall Street has accrued over the decades and centuries, right? That creates two major problems, two adverse selection biases. First, good young people in Gen Z opt out of finance. And people in Gen Z who watch a movie like Wolf of Wall Street and think that's cool, they're the ones who opt into finance. So Wall Street has got this reputation as like this kind of greedy place. It's all self-interest, money, greed. And that is actually turning away people like you, change makers who want to make the world better from the single industry where they could arguably make the greatest impact, right? And simultaneously attracting, right, young people who like maybe impact isn't a priority for them at all. Right. Maybe it's just pure self-interest and greed driving them. And they just want to be rich, post it on Instagram and make the most money. Remember when I was in college and I got this internship at Piper, I was like, everyone knew that I was like so bent on making the world better. The minute that I accepted an offer at Piper, my friends were like, what happened, Ross? Sell your soul to the devil? That's so that real. still exists today. I thought you weren't a snake. I thought you weren't one of them one of those business school kids. And I was like, what? At first I was kind of like, seems weird and misplaced. But then as I, all this that I'm sharing with you started hitting me, I was like, this is a problem. As this is all hitting me, I just get hit by this like kind of wave of powerlessness. Like what am I going to do as a junior in college, senior going into my senior year to transform a global system that has more than a million participants in it? Like nothing. And I don't even have a finance degree. At some Ivy League school, what am I going to do? And as I'm like stewing in this realization and in this powerlessness and hopelessness, the CEO of the firm, Andrew Duff, who was chairman and CEO of Piper for almost 20 years, came and gave a talk to the intern class where he essentially said, we did well through the crisis because A, we focused on serving our clients, on serving others, doing right by others. And B, we stayed true to our values acting with integrity, transparency, honesty, long-term thinking, always doing the right thing. And I'm sitting there like inspired, like, that's it. I'm going to become the CEO of an enormous financial firm and lead thousands of people to mobilize billions of dollars of capital and activity to good things. At the end of his talk, he's like, if any of you ever want to chat, shoot me an email. I have an open door policy. And of 60 interns, apparently I was the only intern that actually did. I got a 15-minute meeting with him. Prepped for hours. I go in there. At the end, I'm like, sir, I have so many more questions. I'd love to meet again. He's like, sure, let's grab an hour and grab coffee across the street in a month. And I walk out shell-shocked like, oh my gosh, okay. I meet my co-founder at this time. I meet this guy, Ryan, who I hope listens to this. And we were at a finance event. I was helping host. And he's like, hey, man, I'm at this other school, president of our finance club. What if we get our finance orgs together for like a networking event to expand our networks to help each other? across the deal table. And I say, I love that. What if we did something to transform finance 
in my second meeting with Mr. Duff, with Andrew, I basically pitched him on what is SOF today. And I say, sir, will you come and give that same talk about serving others and staying true to your values to a bunch of our classmates? Because you inspired me. And if you inspire 10, 20 of us, I think there's a higher probability that one of us can make it to the top where we can affect real change. And he said, yes. And so suddenly, and we've been meeting once a month ever since. And he like helped us design the first event. Six months wow. later, me and Ryan get this little team of six seniors in college. We start meeting in a pub once a week. It's called Stubborn Herbs, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'm the nerd that has like water and vegetables while everyone gets a beer and wing. And we plan this event. And six months later, we have the first, we call it the Scholars of Finance Symposium, where we had almost 140 students and almost 40 executives come together to discuss principled leadership and finance for an entire evening. John Taft, who is CEO of RBC Wealth Management with almost 300 billion in assets, Andrew Duff, Andy Cesari, who's now the CEO and chairman of US Bank, were among our keynotes and our panel and our speakers. We had a mentorship dinner, networking, lots of open discussions. And there was so much demand for this, people wanted to do it again. And so we did a second annual event. Mm -hmm. And to fast forward, that's really the genesis of Scholars of Finance. I focus on all of this for your listeners who are college students to t tell the story of what we did and what we were experiencing as college students when this happened. Right. To fast forward to the rest of the story, I, get, I'm, I go to Twitter, I'm working 100 hour a week. I'm doing like five, 10 hours a week on SOF on the side, helping with the students plan the next event and the next event advising. We launch a nonprofit in 2017 to simplify accepting our sponsorship dollars for these events. Then we start having more speakers, launching programs, the first chapter arises. And then in 2018, we, start, we kicked off a CEO search. We had raised some money. We wanted to scale this. We had not found any organizations that teach principled leadership and finance to college students in the entire country. Like finance needed this. Yes. Right? There was this missing component in our socioeconomic machinery yeah. in this critical formative period that tens of thousands of young people who in the future are going to manage trillions of dollars. After we, we looked at 500 applicants and lots of interviews, it just kept building. I was like, man, this is my calling. There's no thing I could do that's going to have more probability of more impact on more people in my lifetime. This is it. And so I went in, I cut my compensation by 60% and became the full-time CEO of my little nights and weekends nonprofit passion project three years ago. And you fast forward now, um, back then we were at three schools with 40 students and now we're at 46 universities. We have raised almost $5 million, a national team supporting 1,500 students in six different programs, leadership development programs, mentorship programs, events, speaking events, leadership forums, values forums. We have a podcast of our own. We've reached over 2,800 students to date with our programs now. Wow. And we have titans of the industry backing us and top firms as founding partners, including Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Charles Schwab, among others, believe in our vision and mission. Our wow. vision statement is a future where all finance leaders steward the world's capital to serve the greater good. And our mission is to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's like extra inspiring to hear that this was something that came to be when you were a junior in college. And Which now is my year. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And now you're CEO of this organization that is making so many big strides and creating such a great impact. It's really inspiring to hear. Yeah, we love that.
we'll jump into a few kind of specific questions. First, Ross, you mentioned in your story the different values at the center of what you teach at Scholars of Finance, six of them, integrity, compassion, humility, curiosity, impact, and courage. Would love to hear why do you think these values are so important for people seeking jobs in finance to keep in mind? And do you have any examples to share of how students in the program have been able to incorporate these values into their work in finance and make an impact? question, Elise. Thank you so much. We have spent hundreds of hours studying history, psychology, economics, leadership, many fields. Talked to dozens and dozens of leadership experts, researchers, educators from Stanford, Princeton, Harvard, top thinkers in the space of leadership. We've talked to a lot of finance executives, dozens and dozens of finance leaders themselves, and hundreds of our students to determine the type and caliber of leadership finance requires. Our current six values and 24 principles are actually version two. We had version one. We ran that for several years. We We went through a big process of what I just described, again, to arrive at version two. So very briefly, I could talk about these values and principles for hours and hours because those six values and our 24 principles, that is the curriculum of scholars of finance. That is what we teach. To touch on these very briefly so we can get to all your questions. Integrity. We need to know that we can trust the financial system. We need to know that we can trust each other. We have to do right by clients and we have to do right by society at large. We have to be transparent. We have to be accountable. Compassion. People think it's soft. It doesn't have a place in finance. That is simply not true. And I say that with an end sampling of hundreds of finance leaders that I've met, titans in the industry, who are incredibly compassionate. Mm -hmm. I'll use Richard Davis as an example. When I learned that my fiance was diagnosed with breast cancer, I texted several of my mentors. And Richard Davis, five minutes later, he called me and said, Ross, I just walked out of a board meeting. Talk to me. I was like, I was in tears, frankly. And it was pretty tough news, as you might imagine, to get. That's just one story of like hundreds of stories of like incredible compassion I've seen from finance leaders. Simon Sinek talks about this in his in one of his latest books, The Infinite Game, the notion of abstraction and ethical fading. That the further removed we are from thinking about one person with a name, with a story, the less the empathy regions of our brain activate neurologically. When you're in finance, you're looking at spreadsheets thinking about multi-million, multi-billion dollar decisions. You're just looking at columns, rows, and numbers. There's many layers of abstraction from the decisions you're making and the effect it has on that individual, on Jimenez in New Mexico, who's got two daughters and can barely make ends meet Mm. and barely can pay that mortgage payment that you're calculating the rates for. Number one, you have to imbue compassion into finance to to affect decision-making. Second, when you have this abstraction, ethical fading can also occur. Easier to slip up on your values, to not have integrity, to not be honest, to cheat and cut corners when you don't think that your decisions are going to affect real people and you're not in tune with that impact. Third is humility. Humility is a bit of a complex subsystem. All six of our values and 24 principles comprise a system. Humility is a pretty complex subsystem that we teach a lot on. In short, People think arrogance and humility are opposites. We view arrogance and modesty as opposites. Arrogance is, I think too highly of myself in a way that's not accurate. Modesty is, I think too little of myself in a way that's not accurate. Humility is in the center. It's 
accurate self-appraisal, knowing the truth about myself, the good and the bad, right? My strengths and my weaknesses and mm -hmm. keeping myself in perspective, remembering that I'm just one of 8 billion humans, right? But I'm not the center of the world. And so ultimately with humility, we're teaching our students to overcome the ego through selflessness, batting selfishness through selflessness, serving a purpose greater than yourself and combating greed with gratitude, cultivating gratitude for what you have, and then building an accurate picture of your strengths and limitations through asking for and sharing feedback, really embracing feedback from other people to help you uncover your blind spots and better understand the reality that you are. Fourth is curiosity. We have to keep learning and growing. The world around us is evolving rapidly and we need to keep up our knowledge and our paradigms to keep improving. And also, gosh, finance is an incredibly competitive space. That is one commonality in all the top execs I talk to. They're all voraciously curious, lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. If you're not learning, you will not ever become an MD, a partner, a C-level executive, directing large amounts of capital. Segwaying into impact, we almost called it excellence. We were really debating between impact or excellence. We teach long-term thinking. Quarterly profit pressure is one of the biggest things that Fortune 500 CEOs and any public company CEOs lament because it forces them into short-term incrementalism. They can't innovate. They can't take the long innovative bets they need to to drive real change and remain competitive. The other thing that we teach with an impact is live a healthy and balanced life. So we teach seven hours of sleep, exercise every day, sleep well, care yourself, invest in yes. balance. Yes, balance, like nurture your relationships. You sleep five hours a night and you work for 120 hours a week, you will actually get less done than if you sleep eight hours a night and you only work 100 hours a week. Because the person with eight hours of sleep and their 100 hours, their cognitive performance is materially stronger, sharper, and faster than that person working 20 more hours. It actually offsets more productivity than the, the person not sleeping gains with more time. So I give a lot of sleep lectures to our students. And last is courage. Sometimes doing the best thing or the optimal thing or the right thing is, in a, is not popular. And sometimes driving real change requires risk. So we have to be courageous to solve important problems and navigate change in the face of fear, right? The definition of courage. We're all going to experience fear, but we have to cultivate courage over time, build that muscle. So in those pinnacle moments, in those crucible moments, we have the courage to do the right thing, to make the harder decision. An example of students incorporating our values into their work We've literally heard from many students, they choose what firm to work at based on alignment with their values. David Bach, I'm sure he wouldn't mind, one of my mentees wouldn't mind me using him as an example. One of our first ever students in the program joined an investment bank because he believed the guiding principles of the firm aligned with the values he was developing at SOF. And then after his two years in banking, he's now in private equity at a firm called Satori. He literally chose Satori because the firm is deeply focused on making a positive difference in the world. And they have this really unique value-centric culture. He was like, Ross, literally, like in my interviews and conversations at Satori, it felt like I was getting half the SOF curriculum, components of the SOF curriculum. That's why I chose. The so we're actually helping equip our students to find firms that align with their values and give them the courage to, you know, take that offer over the like brand where that, that might not align. That's great. Definitely. And would you say that kind of seeing these students go into the world and choosing to join firms that are impact related or impact aligned is 
one of the largest or most fulfilling moments being like the founder of Scholars of Finance and what other milestones have you been really proud of? Yeah, gosh, there are so many moments and patterns and milestones that bring me a lot of joy and you to fill my tank and you know, fuel me for this mission and to keep steering this rocket ship that is Scholars of Finance. One that I'll bring up, and I hear this not infrequently, one of our students, Joseph Selfani, he actually shared this in one of our podcast episodes, our first student panel. He got to Berkeley, always wanted to do finance, really purpose-driven, impact-driven, really strong core values like integrity, compassion, humility. And he joined like a standard finance club on campus. Like at this top finance club, he was like, Ross, literally it felt like Wolf of Wall Street. It was a bunch of people that just wanted to party, drink and do drugs, get rich, bear the bare minimum at school just to get the Wall Street job. And I literally almost turned away from finance, my life's dream, because I didn't feel like I fit in here. This was not for me. And I didn't know if my values aligned with the industry. And he says, until I got into scholars of finance, which saved me, I found this community of like-minded individuals whose values aligned with mine, who just want to do good in the world, do the right thing the right way for the right reasons make an impact. SOF kept me in finance. Wow. I was like, we're doing what we're meant to do. Like we're creating a community and like a, a, a channel for good people to go into finance or stay in it. That's wonderful. So wonderful to hear. Yes. Yeah. I think too, circling back to the values a little bit, you work with so many driven entrepreneurial and impact driven young individuals, just like the story of the young man you just described, in addition to embodying those six values, or at least being eager and receptive to learning them, what do you think are some of the qualities or skills of individuals that allow them to succeed in the finance industry? Yeah. I, which I think you prefaced. My first answer would be our six values and 24 principles of scholars of finance is pretty comprehensive. But if I had to rise a few key skills that maybe aren't necessarily there directly, emotional intelligence, the ability to manage yourself, awareness, self-management, awareness of others, management of others, and motivation. Like those are really important. Hard work, just grit, resilience, that's critical. A positive attitude is oftentimes self-fulfilling. That's really important. And I'll, I'll reiterate, self-care, balance, relationships, you study the basics of psychology and neuroscience, you need to feel a strong, close connection to people around you to operate at your best, not only sleep. You need good relationships. I think that's really important. The ability to ask really good questions is really important. And I would say the ability to prioritize long-term outcomes over short-term pleasure. A lot of students that, I, that, talk, that come to me for mentorship are like, oh, I'm struggling with time management. I can't balance everything. And I ask them a bunch of questions about how they spend their time. And it turns out they spend like six nights a week partying and, or like, or even three nights a week partying or like you go out drinking for two nights in a week and a lot of, you know, like a, more than a drink or two, that's six hours of your night. Your sleep was not restorative. You're sleeping in for an extra five hours the next day. You're cognitively useless for the entire next day, right? Like two nights of drinking. Call that like a net hour reduction in your productivity for the week. Right. Like do what Evie and Elise are doing. Just like stay in and like go to bed early, wake up early. And like you get 30 hours back immediately. It's not yes. rocket science. 
And then, yeah, I think th those are the skills I think are really important. Those are wonderful. Thank you for sharing those. And yeah, Evie and I are a bit of an anomaly here on campus with the sleep. So keep preaching it, Ross, and hopefully more kids will take your advice. Awesome. Now we're going to move into topic two of the podcast with you, which is specifically social impact in the finance industry. But of course, so much in our conversation so far has been explaining the impact you were making in the finance industry. So that's fantastic question is, the finance industry is very broad. There are many different sectors and niches within it. So students who may be interested or just starting off in finance, which sectors would you recommend that they look into or what skills and values would you recommend that they cultivate before even entering or exploring the finance industry? Yeah, of course. I think we talked about skills and values at length. So I'll just talk about sectors and industries for this, Perfect. if that's okay, Elise. In terms of industries, there's a really good book I'd recommend. Seeking Virtue in Finance by J.C. Deswan actually outlines a pretty broad and, and academic thesis for what sub-verticals and types of investment vehicles within finance he thinks offer the largest opportunity for social impact. He argues that venture capital in order, number one, two, three, venture capital, private equity, and activist investing mm -hmm. are the three types of finance that offer you the most opportunity to actually affect change. In venture capital, you're literally deploying net new money to like innovation, transformation of society, disruption in private equity, not like the like LBO, let's buy it, cut costs, jack up prices and sell it private equity. Anyone listening to this podcast, I will be very open, like buy, flip and sell private equity where you just come in, lay people off, cut costs, lever the business up and then sell it, right? Which has given private equity a bad name. That to me is not a virtuous type of financial activity. People like Mike Arrieta at Garden City Companies, who's coming in, raised $51 million in his first fund, and he is buying service businesses and helping them improve their culture, their sales, and their technology, and wants to hold them for a long period of time to help them grow. That's beautiful. Like private equity can bring discipline. It can bring efficiencies of scale, economies of scale to industries and businesses. That's and activist investing, when you actually come in, like engine number one with Exxon, right? Not too long ago, you come in, you hold on to those shares and you get a couple board seats and you actually affect change in the behavior of a large conglomerate. That's really impactful stuff. The other thing I would offer students as like a lens is value creation versus rent seeking. There's a lot of financial activity that is simply arbitrage, right? Hedge funds, simple example. All they're doing is moving money around and basically just like siphoning value out. They buy it for this, they sell it for that. They're not adding any value. So extractive activity, rent-seeking activity, I would say steer clear of, right? Try to go into activities that are value creating, right? Where you know that the work you're doing financially directly drives tangible real world improvements for the world and society at a profit, driving growth, driving competitive returns which are not incompatible based on the research and data. Wow. Yeah, but I would say just get you know, into finance, get your foot in the door wherever you can, as long as it's not a firm that's just blatantly unethical and profiteering. Get those basic skills and those core skills so you can navigate your way to a firm or to starting your own firm one day where you can really help deploy and allocate capital to its highest and most productive use for humanity. Wow, that is a really powerful framework to think about finance. And I think that our listeners will really find that very helpful. Thank you. 
We also wanted to ask about your thoughts on impact investing, which is something that has become more popular. Do you think that this is the future for finance? What do you think will help propel this trend forward? And how can young people position themselves to capitalize on this trend? Yeah. So I think impact investing means different things to a lot of different people. We actually had Hester Peirce, one of the SEC commissioners on our podcast, and she had really incisive critique on ESG. And then we also had Scott Mather, who is one of the CIOs of PIMCO on our podcast, who's very pro-ESG. So if you want like a balanced perspective on ESG, for instance, go listen to those two episodes of our podcast to get both sides of an argument. For me, the way I think about impact investing, it's not my job to necessarily define the terms, but I'm investing with an eye towards making a positive impact on the world while they're trying to drive returns and profit, investing with a double or triple bottom line, or with an eye towards how products and services affect people, whether through the supply chains, the end user of the products, how those products, how the manufacturing affects our environment, et cetera. There are a lot of different criteria for different people that they use to define impact investing. I think that all investing ultimately should align with how we think of impact investing, right? My hope was that in 50 years, we don't even use the term ESG anymore. We don't even use the term impact investing anymore. When people hear the term investing, they think of someone allocating capital to its highest, most productive use for creating real value, maximizing human thriving and flourishing profitably to drive growth of the pie most efficiently and optimally. That's what I think it means. Like stakeholder capitalism, conscious capitalism, whoever's like coined term in the last 20 years wins out and becomes the term we all use. It just seems like a very natural evolution of our economic system. There is no economic system in history that's driven more prosperity than capitalism, period. We've never seen an experiment run at scale that's driven more prosperity than capitalism. It's also driven among some of the worst inequality. Like we've hollowed out the middle class in Western society in the last 50 years, which is not acceptable in my opinion. There shouldn't be this massive class disparity. And for anyone who's conservative listening, Adam Smith actually says, says as much. In the theory of moral sentiments, he says, the greatest threat to our moral sentiments is the human propensity basically to like hate the rich and neglect the needs of the poor. That is the single biggest threat to our moral sentiments. And so I think anyone who thinks capitalism is like right now in its current form, capitalism is the best economic system we will ever have. That's hubris, right? You haven't studied history. You haven't looked at, you haven't looked at the world around you. The economic system evolved to get us this version of capitalism. It's continuing to evolve as humanity evolves. We become more globalized. We become more educated. We are more technologically enabled. We have better financial markets. And so the capitalist system is evolving to minimize externalities, minimize societally born costs while maximizing real growth and tangible outcomes for people. That to me seems obvious and clear. And so for any, to answer the, the, the brunt of your question, Evie, I would say that for any students who want to go in impact investing, like really understand economics, understand history, understand your own strengths, your own passions, and have like a 50-year view on the impact you want to make on the world and let that fuel you on a 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50-year journey in finance to get there. Because in your first two years as an analyst, you're not, you are at the bottom of a big food chain and you're just going to be doing spreadsheets and decks 80 hours a week. You might get to have a little more of a say 
and firms that are a little more progressive, we'll say, and they're thinking about team and culture and hierarchy, but it's a long journey. So I'd also say like build resilience, build grit and build a long-term vision for like scalable, sustainable impact. That'll pull you through those first couple of years, few years until you're on the other side of that sort of cost of entry period. And now you can make a real scaled impact with capital. Yes. So Ross, we are coming to the end of our podcast. The time always flies. Thank you so much for sharing all about your journey and Scholars of Finance. I think it's really exciting to hear finance in different lights than sometimes people talk about it and to show that finance is a really important area that needs impact-driven leaders. So thank you for sharing that message. Final thing we would love to hear from you with the remaining time is what are the two or three most important things or takeaway lessons that you've already discussed or new ones that come to mind that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Hmm. Such a big question, Elise. It is a hard one. In such a short time. Two or three takeaways that I hope students listening to this podcast get from listening. Number one, be really systematic and structured and patient and thoughtful about how you determine your path to impact. Really think it through, number one. And that includes studying the world around you, studying, understanding yourself in depth, right? There's this Japanese framework called Ikigai, which is one of my favorite frameworks to teach my mentees. It's a Venn diagram of four circles. Our strengths, our passions, what the world needs, how we can earn an income. Mm-hmm. Sit down and journal for a couple of hours. What are in those four circles for you? And start to think and talk to mentors, talk to people later in their career about what could be at the center of those four circles. That's one. Two, please consider finance as your path to impact. I hope that I convinced you in the beginning, talking about the thesis of scholars of finance, that nonprofits, government, there's not as much opportunity for systemic impact as there is in finance. Come to finance, come to the investment space and allocate capital, millions, hopefully billions of dollars to making the world better. Like we need good people in finance. There's a lot of them. There's a ton of good people in finance. The Wolf of Wall Street reputation isn't true for 90% of people in finance plus, Mm -hmm. right? So like come into this industry and let's make a difference in the world. Third thing is, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already thinking about impact. It's already on your mind. I'll leave you with a quote. It's an African proverb. If we want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you're listening to this podcast, make sure that you invest in friendships and relationships with other people who will keep you motivated and focused on making the impact you know you are capable of making. Wow, that is a powerful way to end our podcast. Thank you so much, Ross. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and you've shared so many great insights. So thank you so much. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, Elise.